I remember like seeing how offended people were when this clothing brand came with the name Banana Republic. Many people in Latin America saw it as slapping their face, like just man, we're going to make fun of you. Not only not only we're going to create Banana Republic, but we're going to make fun of you because of that. So welcome back to another episode of El Podcast. Today's guest is Professor Marcelo Buccelli, an acclaimed academic who specializes in business administration, international business history, and foreign direct investment, with roles at a Harvard Business School and the University of Illinois. He's earned teaching awards and made significant contributions to management theory. He's also the author of the book, Bananas in Business, which is about the United Fruit Company and is today's topic on El Podcast. Thank you so much, Marcelo, for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jesse. So the history of the United Fruit Company is captivating. It involves prominent figures like Che Guevara and Castro in Cuba, the CIA, mercenaries, assassins, and additionally, the novel, 100 Years of Solitude, references the Banana Company. Can you provide a concise overview of the United Fruit Company's significant events and impact for those unfamiliar with the history of the United Fruit Company, which is today better known as Chiquita? Yes. United Fruit was the company that popularized bananas in the United States. It was uh, created after a merger of several transportation and production banana companies in, in the Caribbean and, the, and Central America in the year of 1899. And uh, then it started uh, expanding, integrating its operations to include a a steamship fleet, railway lines, telegraph lines, um, plantations, a distribution network within the United States. And uh, it's considered the first uh, multinational corporation in the agricultural sector that vertically integrated its operations meaning controlling from uh, the plantation, the production, the transportation, and the distribution in the final markets. So economically speaking, the company played a very big role in some particular countries in the first half of the 20th century. Some countries depended very heavily on uh, banana exports, countries like Honduras, like uh, Guatemala, And, uh, I mean, Honduras was like the extreme case in which around 80% of its exports were bananas and the great majority of those exports were controlled by United Fruit and around 80% of those bananas went to the U.S. So it was a strong dependence on the U.S., on bananas and on United Fruit. As a result of uh, this very important uh, economic uh, role, The company also had a very strong political role in that area. That is why it was known as El Pulpo, the octopus, not only because its involvement in, as I mentioned, production, distribution, communications, transportation, etc., but also its involvement in domestic politics in those countries, particularly if we take into consideration that the Central American countries were and are still small, and if a single company had a very heavy participation on their main export, then that gives this company a very strong political power. The reason why it's so well known in Latin America is mostly because of its political importance and political involvement, rather than just the economic importance of the firm. And what was its role politically? 
that is known for? The company in the first half of the 20th century has been accused of being involved in uh, several political events like a war, a brief war between Honduras and Guatemala over the control of plantations between the United Fruit Company and another American corporation actually called the Cuyamil Fruit Company, which was eventually acquired by uh, United Fruit. In the 1950s, uh, the events by which uh, the firm is most uh, well-known are in particular the coup against the Guatemalan president Jacobo Arbenz in 1952. This president uh, was the first uh, democratically elected president succeeding another democratically elected president in the history of Guatemala. So it was uh, a big uh, thing. And Arbenz, as uh, part of his political agenda, wanted to develop an agrarian reform. For this, he wanted to distribute lands and used lands of large landowners to small peasants. Now, one of the large landowners in that country was uh, United Fruit, who, I mean, uh, the firm protested uh, strongly against uh, this initiative. And as part of its strategy to stop the government from distributing its lands, it uh, developed a and actually advertising campaign in the U.S., a campaign against the Guatemalan government for which it hired an advertising firm. The point here was to convince uh, lawmakers and the media that the initiatives in Guatemala, the initiative particularly of an agrarian reform, were dangerous for the United States because it would turn Guatemala into a foothold of the Soviet Union in times of the Cold War. And the campaign was successful. They managed to convince lawmakers that initially were not really concerned about Guatemala, a small country, or not concerned about bananas. Um, but uh, this led um, legislators to approve an operation to overthrow the Guatemalan government, and uh, which was eventually replaced by a dictatorship more uh, friendly towards the United States um, than the Arbenz uh, government. And that the person who was doing the PR firm, the public relations firm, wasn't that Edward Bernays, who was Sigmund Freud's niece, who was like the grandfather of kind of propaganda, also known as public relations? I think he was the one that was in charge of that, wasn't he? It was his firm, for sure. It was a Bernays, uh, I meant... Uh, so, I mean, uh, one thing in which they innovated, I mean, if we want to use that word in this case, but was by using all the advertisement techniques. This is the Mad Men era or the beginning of that era, but using it for foreign relations purposes. And basically, yeah, kind of like how to manipulate an audience, which is what advertisement is about but around the idea that Guatemala was this dangerous monster that Americans should be scared about. Again, these were times of the Red Scare and in times in which a great percentage of the American population, I'm sure they could not locate Guatemala in the map or maybe have never heard of it, uh, then making it into a threat required systematic, concerted 
campaign that used all these methods that you mentioned as psychologically psychological methods like focus groups sociological knowledge all these kinds of things yeah the term banana republic was coined by o henry in his novel cabbages and kings which was influenced by events in honduras involving the United Fruit Company. Can you explain the origins and the meaning of the term Banana Republic? Yes. As you just mentioned, the term yeah comes from O'Henry, the Cabbages and Kings story, in which he was inspired by the case of Honduras to describe a country controlled by one single corporation, ruled by an authoritarian regime, highly unequal and certainly underdeveloped. We know the term emerged from there and became a pejorative term. I mean, like, uh, usually that's, um, yeah, that's the way it's, it's used. And again, this idea of a country that is not democratic and that is, might be in the pocket of, uh, let's say, one or two corporations, and that because of these characteristics, the country cannot develop, advance, or at least the majority of the population uh, continues uh, living in poverty and underdevelopment. Do you think that those same cu- countries today are still a banana republic, or do you think that the banana republic era has ended? I mean, it's a complicated question. I mean, certainly those economies have diversified more than, let's say, in the first half of the 20th century. They tried, not successfully, but they tried, particularly in the 60s, 70s, some of them to industrialize themselves. And uh, some of them, like Costa Rica, even developed software industry and tourism is one of the things. Now, I mean, they are certainly more democratic than they were in those times, or at least the last few years, we've seen, again, some kind of like falling back into more semi-authoritarian regimes. And bananas are still important, for sure. And most of the bananas that Americans consume come from those countries, uh, in addition to Colombia and Ecuador. If we are going to talk about a banana republic as a country, uh, if one of the characteristics of a banana republic is the strong control by a single company, one could say that era is over. And it might be over, it's interesting because it's partially over because of actions of the U.S. Department of Justice in the 1950s and 1960s, particularly, I mean, 1950s, but we know what things are implemented, it takes time. And uh, United Fruit at some point was accused of uh, violating the antitrust legislation, partially because of the strong control that it had over production in Central America. So it was uh, forced to sell some of its properties. Some of them were bought by local banana planters, some of them by other American multinational corporations, Del Monte being the main beneficiary of that. So in that case, things changed. In the 1970s, we also see a few changes, particularly as a result of the oil crisis of 1974. The Central American republics do not produce oil, And you can imagine poor countries that depend on such a non-strategic good like bananas, seeing the price of energy going to the roof. What we saw in those times was that even these authoritarian right-wing regimes, I mean, a dictator is still a politician anyway. 
And a dictator knows that he cannot do whatever on earth he wants. He needs certain support from certain group of people in their country. So the authoritarian regimes in Central America were aware that the crisis generated by the oil crisis uh, could degenerate in a political crisis. And their strategy to neutralize any potential problem was to ally themselves with the labor unions of the banana industry as a way to pressure the banana companies to increase their royalties and taxes. There's not an ideological shift in these rulers. It's a purely pragmatic thing. They're, again, politicians. I need a force to convince, to increase my bargaining power with these multinational corporations. So if I bring the unions on my side, that uh, generates pressures. And, uh, well, unions, of course, logically also took advantage of this situation to increase their demand. Uh, the government, say, again, sided with this, um, with this demand. And here we see something in which the characteristics of the Banana Republic did not apply. United Fruit, called by then United Brands, called Washington, as uh, they had done for a long time, asking for help. But Washington this time, again, busy, the Vietnam War, they're in Asia, a horrible crisis, inflation, whatever, where they're really going to use our time on bananas. And, uh, and basically the response from Washington was almost like, I'm sorry, but you deal with that on your own for two reasons. First, we're busy. Second, and if we make the parallel with what happened in Guatemala beforehand, these dictators are still right-wing dictators. They're still killing and torturing communists. We're not going to alienate a political ally over some royalties that actually you can afford to pay anyway. This was a moment in which we see the alliance breaking, not forever, but certainly the alliance breaking from what we had seen during the Cold War years. I mean, I mean, the height of the Cold War in the 1950s. As a result of this, two factors, as I mentioned beforehand, the U.S. Department of Justice forcing United Fruit to get rid of some of its land. And second, its lack of support by Washington to United Fruit when it confronted the military or the regimes in Central America. We see a fragmentation of the industry in the sense that more local corporations are involved. Some of them actually as co-ops. Those ones didn't uh, go that far, but there was that uh, possibility and the locals finding ways to export the fruit themselves. So bananas are still important for sure, but it's not the characteristics that led O. Henry to coin this term that eventually was adopted by a lot of people later. While conducting research for Bananas and Business, your book, you engaged with various individuals, including former United Fruit employees, local export company officials, union leaders, banana entrepreneurs, and former members of the Colombian guerrillas. What were the reoccurring topics or themes that emerged from these interviews while you were writing that book? Since we're talking about people who were alive in the, um, let's say, time bracket would be 1970s, 1990s. The perception, of course, is different. I mean, and did not include the, the classic banana republic years. Recurring themes. Many people perceived United Fruit as becoming weaker, but 
they were aware that as long as the company retreated because of the processes that I mentioned beforehand, getting rid of lands, the company did not become weaker. The company realized that they still could hold on to the strongest link of the trade, which is transportation and distribution in the U.S. Once the local entrepreneurs started exporting, then they realized, I mean, they faced this surprise like, oh, and who am I going to sell this to? Again, Chiquita. So this was one element that I found that, I mean, um, it, it was kind of like a surprising point that they thought, oh, okay, now we're in control of this. And this is something we see in many multinationals in the 1990s, that they're like, uh, and, and the 1980s, that they're like, all right, you guys want to be so nationalistic, you're expropriating whatever. Well, guess who holds power in marketing and distribution? And without me, I mean, what are you going to do? Actually, they were saving money to the firm because now the firm did not have to deal with production and strikes, all that. They were just receiving the bananas in their boats and left. And, and it was like an unintended consequence that they did not think uh, it could happen. The Central Americans at some point bought a boat, I mean, to create their own firm, which was kind of like almost laughable. I mean, one boat against Chiquita's fleet. And in Colombia, they were a little bit more successful, but still uh, the biggest control was on Chiquita. When it comes to labor unions, I also found a recurrent theme, which was the weakness they still face when confronting multinational corporations. And this is related to the point I just mentioned, the control over distribution. For the following reasons, I remember talking to union leaders and they said, okay, beforehand, we were like dealing with one company. And yeah, we had to coordinate, but we were dealing with one company. Then when the government had initiatives and um, to transfer lands to local firms or local families or whatever, then the unions saw this result that they were not anticipating. Let's say before United Fruit left, you organized a union around a plantation. Now, if the plantation is sold to five firms, then you have five unions and the five unions of different sizes. And therefore, the power of each is not going to be that powerful. I mean, not, not that big, sorry. And actually, the firm they would be demanding things from is not that rich either because they still need to pay uh, Chiquita for the transportation of the bananas. So I saw a lot of people kind of lamenting the New Times. Like, oh, once there's local control, we actually have less power because it's better to have a union with 5,000 people than 10 unions with uh, 500. And of course, the owners use this division as a tool to increase their bargaining power. So that was another topic I saw. When United Fruit changed in Colombia, it produced bananas in plantations until the 1940s. Then during World War II, it interrupted its operations. And when it came back after the war, it started getting rid of lands gradually. Partially because, I mean, in Central America, they had forced them to do so. But then they really, little by little, they started realizing actually maybe it's not good business to, I mean, it, it's, it's not, it's not, not good business in the sense that lands are risky, are risky in the sense that somebody can expropriate them from you or the workers, I don't know, in a, I mean, they can 
set fire to the trees or whatever. There are many risks involved in owning plantations, but they were worried particularly about the nationalism and maybe a government expropriating lands and whatever. So they started kind of like in a preemptive way to get rid of the lands and actually asking the government, okay, you wanted an agrarian reform, didn't you? So I can sell you my lands. And then many factors came together. These were the times of the Alliance for Progress. The United States was giving a lot of money to Latin American countries, partially to develop an agrarian reform. And therefore, the government in Colombia had the cash to buy those lands. Then in the 60s, United Fruit went to another region called Urabá in Colombia. And from day one, they started already outsourcing production, just controlling distribution. It operated as a bank. If you wanted to develop uh, bananas, it became, yeah, a service company. Uh, I will give you a loan to develop those bananas as long as you promise that you will sell them to me afterwards. It sounded like a good business for a lot of people. And then you deal with any labor problem. Your question was about recurrent themes. This region of Uraban, if you look at the map, is the region that borders Colombia and Panama. As we speak, right now is a region of a horrible migration problem because people who are trying to go to North America uh, go through that uh, area. But in the 1980s, it was one of the most violent regions in the world. The weather was horrible. And basically it was a war that involved left-wing guerrillas, right-wing paramilitary, of course the Colombian state, and the cocaine mafia. I remember I started asking people when I was there, okay, why why so much conflict? I mean, around bananas. I mean, after all, like, uh, I mean, like, uh, it, it's a, in the 80s, it was a very dangerous country, and Urabá was the most dangerous area in Colombia. So, yeah, one of the most dangerous places in the world. And I remember from talking to union leaders to um, entrepreneurs who, of course, were cautious when saying these kinds of things, they said, you know what, look at the, I mean, this geographic point, and now, I mean, people interested in the migration crisis, I think this is something is not mentioned, but should be. This point is crucial for the cocaine trade in the Americas. And it's, it's crucial for two things. This is the main entry point for weapons that are smuggled by smugglers, and the main exit point of cocaine. So you have two very big businesses, two very dangerous businesses that involved only yeah mean and violent people. And it happened to take place in a place where they're growing bananas. So the fight was not around bananas, even though they were clean banana union leaders. And there was a horrible fight in between the paramilitary and the guerrillas over the control of the banana unions, because whoever controlled them gave them a lot of power in the region. But in the end, what people were telling, and now, I mean, more and more evidence uh, comes up, a lot of that had to do with uh, about who controls this territory that is so crucial for weapon smuggling and drug smuggling. Unfortunately, the American audience is not very familiar with that region. Those interested in the, the migration crisis might have heard of the Darien area, which is where you see people from all over the world, like Haitians, Ukrainians, Syrians, you name it, and they are like abused and raped and killed. It's a really bad thing. That is another crisis that was added to the existing one. 
and the plantations of bananas still exist. You still see the Chiquita boats anchored um, in the ocean, but Chiquita was kind of like managing to operate parallel to this whole um, messy situation. How do you think that Latin America, I guess in particular like Central America, would look today, the banana growing regions would look today if United Fruit and the banana trade never started? Oh, that is, uh, hmm. that is a big question. Because, okay, let's put it, let's say in two ways. It is undeniable that these banana companies built roads where there were no roads and hospitals where there were no hospitals. Uh, when I was talking to all the union leaders, actually they said their housing was actually good because it was better than the, the housing of a poor person in the region. And by the way, I saw more than one old worker longing for the company. And, well, they created an export sector. So this is something, I mean, if you want to believe that, of course, a country wants to increase their exports in order to develop, that should be a good thing. Now, their involvement in politics um, is undeniable that those investments certainly must have helped their economies. Uh, their involvement in politics uh, certainly hurt the possibility of those countries becoming more democratic. They certainly usually allied with the most uh, reactionary segments of society. And uh, that certainly did not want um, much social mobility. And development without social mobility is kind of like no development. I mean, it's economic growth. It's not necessarily development if economic growth that it does not come together with an improvement in the livelihood of the poorest people or more chances for social mobility. Now, if it had not been United Fruit but somebody else, would it have been different? Would it have been different? It's hard to tell. I mean, their main competitor, Standard Fruit Company, they were not saints either. I mean, and actually this was a modus operandi of many corporations, especially operating in the extractive sectors, in the developing countries in those times. The governments in Central America, yeah, when they tried to extract more rents from the firm, they were successful as long as they could have the American government on their side. This is something that happened, for example, in Costa Rica in the 50s as well. The government also increased in taxation and all that. But Costa Rica did not look as an ally of the Soviet Union. Guatemala did. It's another story. Honduras also actually managed to increase their royalties, but under a more uh, conservative government. So this is something that, I mean, it's kind of like an ironic um, result here, but these countries were too weak because you see other countries in Latin America and otherwise that could extract more from the companies, partially because they were more powerful and bigger. But these countries were just too poor, just too little, and United Fruit was just too powerful. One point that could be said is that they also turned those economies way too dependent on banana exports. And banana exports did not really generate much linkages with other sectors of the economy or does not promote, I don't know, having an educated workforce. Because in order to cut with a machete, you don't need much education. So this is something that also in the long term created problems. Also, I mean, there are studies that show that United Fruit actually tried to promote racism in um, some Costa Rican plantations 
against, I mean, I mean, a conflict between English-speaking black workers brought from uh, Jamaica and other West Indies islands and the local mestizo Spanish-speaking workers. They brought these um, Jamaican workers partially because they speak English, so that was an advantage for the firm. They were used uh, to that type of work. But because they spoke English, they put them in positions of power. And the locals resented that a lot. And they were locals that were also racist. And after a while, United realized, actually, this is not such a bad thing that they don't like each other because they will not coordinate with each other. They will not uh, create unions and all that stuff. And there was kind of like a concerted action to keep them divided along racial lines, uh, language lines, and all these kinds of things. And even now, today, I mean, you go to the coast of places like Honduras, like Guatemala, you still see a lot of people of African origin who speak English, and many of them are descendants of these people who came to work for United Fruit, many of them horribly discriminated against, and of course that creates this complicated uh, situation in the country. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I lived in Costa Rica for six months going to a Spanish immersion school, and my teacher said she worked in Limon, Costa Rica, for a few years on the coast and said that she didn't like living there because all the locals hated her because on that side of the coast in Costa Rica, they speak English. It's mostly settled by the Jamaicans. And she said they looked down on like the Spanish-speaking Costa Ricans. I thought that was interesting and everybody knew where that came from, but that would make sense. Oh, and, and this is something because we have two types of hierarchies there. On the one hand, racially speaking, those who were not black thought of themselves as superior as those Jamaican workers, but English is considered superior to Spanish, and therefore it creates this hierarchy. I mean, in the job market, the Jamaicans were better positioned than the only Spanish-speaking people. And again, United Fruit actually played with that. And actually, for example, Marcus Garvey uh, he traveled to Central America and tried to mobilize those English-speaking um, African descendant people that had brought, been brought from uh, Jamaica, Barbados, these places, as part of his bigger project of uniting all people of African descent. And actually, United Fruit was scared of him. Once I was looking at some uh, cables of the company, and of course they hated him, like this American black guy who is coming here and telling our workers that... Uh, they should go to Africa, that the white men are evil and all these kinds of things. And uh, God, I mean, you see those cables and, um, well, I mean, you can imagine the era and uh, secret cables and <laughs> that combination. So American Southerners, because most of the workers, the white workers of United Fruit came from the U.S. South. The company was headquartered in Boston and there was another internal uh, tension within the company, between the Bostonian elite that operated the firm from Boston and the white Southerners who actually went to the plantations and worked along these Jamaican workers and the other local workers. So you can imagine the racism they brought with them. It's interesting because uh, partially these white Southerners had an advantage also in that area because the social relations resemble those in the U.S. South in those times um, relatively strongly. So yes, I mean, they partially, they kind of like felt at home 
And when you read the stories uh, by O. Henry, it's so interesting how he find, I mean, he describes these southerners living like kings there and actually loving it. And, um, I mean, hating the locals. I mean, as you can imagine, it was kind of like going back to a pre-Civil War era for some of them. Do you see any parallels with contemporary multinational corporations today with United Fruit in its heyday? In its heyday, okay, one would find interesting parallels actually with Chinese corporations operating in Africa. This is out of my reading rather than direct research, but there are many reports talking about how they bring uh, their own Chinese workers and their own even Chinese food and uh, all these kinds of things to the mining areas and agricultural places or the infrastructure projects in sub-Saharan Africa. Once I was listening to a BBC documentary in which they interviewed those workers, I mean, the Chinese managers, and the racist terms into which they refer to the African workers were outrageous. And, uh, well, I mean, that, but also in terms of their very close relationship with authoritarian regimes, and kind of like playing a role at keeping them in power, we see kind of like a renaissance of that. American corporations, on the other hand, I mean, in the last couple of decades, as we all know, they've been outsourcing and outsourcing so much that the responsibility many times, I mean, whatever happens, and this is the way they try to wash their hands many times, they were like, well, it's some local, the one that is behaving in a mean way, it's not us. Yeah, it's interesting, it's more around these natural resource-seeking corporations of uh, emerging economies that we see uh, something that will resemble more closely what United Fruit was in Central America in the first half of the 20th century. Your book talked about some of the paradoxes, and like you mentioned, about how some of the, the former employees of United Fruit kind of longed to go back and long for those days. Was there ever such a thing as a golden age of banana republics? I wouldn't say a golden age. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, I don't know, one of those countries was like um, Argentina in its olden times when they were exporting meat and Buenos Aires looked like Paris. Now, of course, the elites might remember uh, some golden times for sure. They were having fun and they were enjoying it. But these workers, I mean, it's more, it talks more badly about the aftermath than good about the, the previous times because United Fruit went into those countries and built their company towns and to a degree some of those company town, towns maybe didn't look very different from a mining company town in Utah and maybe the standards were lower but those standards were still higher than the ones uh, people were used to. So yeah, it was interesting because some workers said, uh, well, my parents tell me that they used to eat, for example, out of a banana leaf with their hands. And when United Fruit built their canteens, they were eating with fork and knife on a dish. That was a big improvement. Maybe United Fruit did not even think about giving people food in a banana leaf because, because they brought different standards. So yeah, many workers were talking about how the company stores and sold many good things that were at, an at affordable prices. So that is why I saw some people saying the aftermath was not good because they left and the Colombians, they were not going to give us any of that. And I mean, the hospital people in Santa Marta there in Colombia, in Northern Colombia, the city of Santa Marta, there is still this hospital 
it was built in the 50s so you can tell when you see the building it, it was a really nice building when it was built now it looks like old but it was a really nice building it still operates as a hospital and i remember all people telling me look look at that hospital like it, this was the best hospital in this city for like 60 years it was that kind of thing and uh, yeah people longing for things like oh they were punctual when they paid us they were punctual when they called for meetings like uh, details it's hard also to criticize to criticize them because we can talk about imperialism and all that but if somebody says i had dishes and i had a house and now longer like how can you argue against that i remember once traveling through honduras hearing similar stories like uh, how, for example, the company sometimes gave the payment to the women of the household rather than the men, uh, partially because they trusted women more than men. I'm not going to judge uh, somebody who lives way much worse than me for longing better times under this corporation. What are the main takeaways or lessons from the United Fruit Company's history in Latin America that could be relevant to understanding their history today and how multinational corporations operate in these countries today. Some people say, oh, it's not that the companies are corrupt, it's that the regimes are corrupt and therefore the companies behave the way the regimes work. I can agree up to degree with that. But the point is that, I mean, yeah, they came to countries that were messed up, but the point is that they reinforced that. And when the countries became more democratic, they actively sought to turn them into more authoritarian regimes. Democracy was not good for business. And this is something in which you hear a lot about now, like freedom you give to people, the better businesses will do, and all these kinds of things. But it was clear. I mean, they disliked um, democracy. I mean, at least in those countries. So this is something in which corporations particularly dislike that type of regime when they are way too powerful in that country. They might just start talking about, oh yeah, democracy is such a wonderful thing when they have competitors and they want, I don't know, some sort of Department of Justice, some sort of ACC, kind of like controlling, I mean, antitrust, all these kinds of things. But when they're the sole players or one of the two or five main players, you don't see them making any effort uh, to change things for the better if we think democracy is better than dictatorship. But we see them actually making an effort to keep the status quo. This is something, again, we're beginning to see in Africa. And the fact that the American government supported this firm in several locations when confronting democratically elected governments had a legacy that it's interesting. Most Americans don't even realize how strong it was because there was at least one generation of people who thought when Americans talk about democracy, it's BS. Like, uh, and, and like skepticism towards the Americans uh, preaching about democracy, skepticism sometimes against the democracy in itself. Uh, you mentioned Che Guevara. Che Guevara was living in Guatemala when the coup took place. And he himself said afterwards, look, I mean, I saw the Guatemalans elected a government. The government wanted to conduct reforms. The Americans opposed and they brought a military dictatorship. So under his viewpoint, democracy was useless and change could be only be achieved through armed revolution. And we know what happened afterwards. That is a really strong legacy that maybe the company forgot, the Americans forgot, but uh, then like, oh my God, what is going on in Cuba and why so many people are, I mean, why is Fidel Castro so popular in Latin America? Well, some decisions were made in Guatemala in the 50s 
that uh, maybe did not make the news for much longer after the coup, but you saw millions of people, yeah, I mean, demonstrating, having a perception of the U.S. as an enemy, the U.S. as an anti-democratic country, and American corporations as their main arm. And this is something that you see politicians bringing back over and over because it's so easy because the evidence is there. Do you think that the banana republics or maybe more authoritarian control by government entities due to corporations having more control? Do you think we're seeing a trend of other countries maybe being a little bit more authoritarian, maybe even the U.S.? Well, I think this is another big question, but everybody talks about the democratic wave of the 1980s and Latin America in particular was ruled by mostly military dictatorships that were replaced by democratically elected uh, regimes, which was seen as a wonderful thing. But uh, now we see, I mean, who is the most popular politician in Latin America? El Salvador, El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, who is not shy about how much he loves being more and more authoritarian. And people love him partially because he's more and more authoritarian. We need to also... I don't know, rethink, because, yeah, we can think about them like all those banana republics and one company having all this power and like having links with the government and with 10 families and all that. But when you look at sectors in the U.S., like the financial sector or the so-called defense sector, you see the revolving doors between Washington and the financial sector, particularly places like the Federal Reserve, it should be outrageous. And we all know that the the least popular economic sector in the U.S. economy is the financial sector. Nobody loves Wall Street. I mean, it's kind of like from the left, right, middle class, poor people. I mean, nobody loves them, but they're so powerful. And the government keeps bailing them out. And uh, they have more power than any other sector. I mean, like the government can uh, wriggle their, fin I mean, their finger to a car company who is not producing enough after receiving a bailout. But the financial sector just keeps going and going and going. And, and again, like uh, you look at the boards and these are people who were in the government and then go back and then, I mean, they go back and forth. And uh, and this is something that, of course, I mean, uh, up to what degree a government, I mean, is completely independent of a particular economic sector if they have these super strong links. This didn't happen in times when the U.S. was more dominated, let's say, by car companies or by other types of manufacturers. Yeah, they were powerful. They had friends in power all that, but this thing with the financial sector, which also people are aware that they don't create that many jobs. I mean, it's mostly innovation is basically ways to, to speculate better. This is something that in which I believe something should be rethought here. And same for the defense sector, all the subsidies that they receive, do they need them? And like, how can it be stopped? I mean, nobody, it seems like nobody can stop this weight of the defense sector and all these subsidies that they receive. Like the role of the financial sector and the defense sector here in the U.S. is something that sometimes reminds me a little bit of that. Like, I mean, governments have their hands tied. If there was a president who really went against Wall Street and the defense sector, God, would we actually see finally a first coup here in the U.S., I mean, a first successful coup in the U.S.? It's hard, to, it's hard to know. I'm just speculating here. And especially the growth of the financial sector in the world economy and and their political role. It's something that has not been seen before. Yeah, before the 1970s, the U.S. was building these large dam projects and was one of the top manufacturing countries in the world. 
now the U.S. leads the world in financial engineering, as you're basically saying it, kind of like this revolving revolving door. It seems like the finance in the finance. What is the financial engineering sector contributing to society is is beyond me. Yeah, I mean, and, and we know. I mean, Goldman Sachs. You go to Goldman Sachs and the Federal Reserve, then come back. That gives a lot of power to that uh, private corporation. And we know. I mean, they keep messing up and they keep being rescued. And I remember once I naively at an academic conference was talking about yeah, my like more democratic countries like the U.S., in which the government supposedly is uh, more independent from private corporations. And somebody correctly shut me up and embarrassed me in front of everybody and brought the financial sample, which led me to rethink so many things because it makes sense. So Marcelo Buccelli, yeah, I just want to thank you for joining us. I know you got to get going here quick. Can you just kind of let people know if any new works you're working on, where people can find you, and then just leave us with a final thought or a conclusion here. I've been posting my papers in marcelobuccelli.com which I have several publications, not only on United Fruit, but also on ITT in Chile and the oil companies in Latin America. Right now, I'm working on a book project in which I am trying to show how globalization after the 1870s, a lot of that was pushed by government action rather than, as most scholars say, uh, entrepreneurial activities or simply the lowering of tariffs and obstacles for trade. I mean, what I want to say is actually, I mean, many corporations actually like obstacles to trade. They like the government intervening to decrease competition because, I mean, I mean, corporations really don't like competition. And uh, so, um, so yeah, I'm providing an overview. The book is not finished. I need to finish it. But uh, this is what I'm working on right now. And another project on um, the creation of the international coffee market. Um, I have an article upcoming in which uh, we talk about how Brazil, Colombia, and the United States created a coffee market. And the coffee market is a result. The coffee market as we know it is more a result of political calculations, particularly during World War II and the Cold War by the U.S. and these other two governments rather than just simply Americans wanting to have more coffee. These are the two things I'm working on right now. And what was the reason for writing Bananas and Business? The reason actually came from readings of my teenage years, uh, growing up in Latin America, uh, reading Eduardo Galeano, and then, um, yeah, Pablo Neruda, Garcia Marquez, and United Fruit was like this monster. United Fruit was not the largest multinational operating in Latin America. It's certainly not a huge corporation within the United States. And I was amazed by the level of knowledge and kind of like the social impact the operations of this corporation had. And then I realized, I mean, there was a lot to study on how the company operated in Latin America throughout these years. But what brought me there was this point. I had a bunch of very left-wing uncles and aunts who, when dinner at the dinner table, were just talking about this and quoting Galliano and uh, Jacobo Timmerman and all these people. And um, and yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I basically grew up hearing about these guys. You see graffitis in the street. I remember like seeing how offended people were 
when this clothing brand came with the name Banana Republic, many people in Latin America saw it as slapping their face, like just man, we're going to make fun of you. Not only not only we're going to create Banana Republic, but we're going to make fun of you because of that. So um, so so yeah, that's it's per, it's partially yeah, and I have to say. The reading of Galeano, the author of the Open Beans of Latin America, um, that I did as a teenager, I must say, started this curiosity around this corporation. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Marcelo Buccelli, for joining us and, and talking about United Fruit Company. Thank you so much, Jesse. It was a pleasure. My dear friends, that is it for this episode of El Podcast. Once again, if you're not yet subscribed, please subscribe on YouTube as well as Rumble. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.